book of Romans, chapter 1. For one more time, let me begin reading in Romans 1, verse 18. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, which I hope you all will take time to read if you never have, um, it's the best-selling book of all time outside the Bible. It's the second best-selling book of all time, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and it's a great, great book. But in that book, he portrays Men, particularly one man, Christian, but others who come along the way, who are seeking to follow Christ, to walk the path that Christ has laid out in front of them and and to finish the race and to to make it to, to Canaan, the promised land, heaven. The way is hard and narrow, but all along the way as Christian and his friends go, God provides them the grace they need to endure Well, in one particular part of the book, we have Christian and Faithful. That's the names of the two men. And Christian and Faithful, on their journey to heaven, come to a place called Vanity Fair. It's a big fair. And we're told that all Christians must pass through Vanity Fair. Here is a place where all that the world offers is thrown at us, and we must make a choice. Will we buy into the things of the world and make them our gods? Or will we keep our eyes on heaven and persevere through the fair, counting all that the world offers as nothing compared to Christ? At this fair, Bunyan says, every type of merchandise was sold, including houses, lands, trades, palaces, honors, promotions, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, and pleasures. There are also delights of all sorts, such as prostitutes and madams, wives and husbands, children and masters, servants and lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and much more. 
And the question is, with all that the world offers, will you settle in to this fair, as so many in the past have done, rather than moving on to follow Christ? It's true that we must have possessions and things in this life, but they must only be, be kept if they help us on our journey to heaven. Otherwise, we ought not to weigh ourselves down with these things. There is so much pleasure to be had in these things, and far too many people have lost their souls because they settled down into the temporary pleasures of the world. Bunyan says that at this fair, there is the constant entertainment of jugglers and cheats, games and plays, clowns and mimics and tricksters and rogues and many other amusements. In our day, we might point to the the television or the radio or the Wii or the golf course or the all-you-can-eat buffet or every other form that we have in our culture of entertaining ourselves. And these things, most of them, are not bad in and of themselves. But they must not be valued too highly. They must not hold too much of our affections and our love. They must all be dispensable. Let me ask you, is there anything in this life that you would consider indispensable for the cause of Christ? Is there anything in your heart that if Christ said, it must go, you would choose to keep it rather than obey Christ? It's a good way to identify an idol in your heart. Bunyan says that as Christian and faithful travel through Vanity Fair, they stick out and they cause a great commotion. They cause a great commotion among the people because they look so different than all these others who are living in the the giddiness of earthly delights. Christian and faithful, they're not wearing the most fashionable clothes of the day, and they don't seem to care too much about it. They talk different. Everybody else at Vanity Fair is talking about the latest things of the day and the latest items and the latest going on, but Christian and faithful seem to be talking about a whole other sort of thing, spiritual things, heavenly things, and they're using a, a different kind of language than the people understand talking about the things of God. And they stick out mainly because they don't seem to value all these things that everyone else in Vanity Fair values. As they walk through the fair and all the people offer their goods and they say, see this, buy this, look here, buy this. Christian and faithful, they, they look and they see, but, but they don't seem to, to care that much about all this stuff. It's almost as if they've tasted a better Sweeter pleasure that makes all these other things pale in comparison. My question is, is that us? Are we as Christians, are we different from the world we live in? Is Jesus saving us from our idols, causing us to see the stuff of this world as what it is? Stuff. Not that these things are bad. It's just that they're stuff. (laughs) And our hearts are prone to take stuff and make them gods. But the Christian has found the true God. And nothing should compare with that. 
Why would we waste our lives in obtaining stuff when we can move on to higher and deeper delights? The delight of knowing God more deeply, serving Him more completely, coming closer and closer as we conform to His will. Well, by the end of the chapter, faithful is dead. The people of Vanity Fair were so disgusted that he did not treasure the things that they did, that they hated him for it, and they killed him. If we take the messages we've heard today to heart, and we choose not to be idolaters, but to submit everything we are and everything we have to Christ and Christ alone, we will not fit in in this world, and we will be misunderstood, and sometimes we might be laughed at, sometimes we might be ridiculed, and in some parts of the world we would be killed. There is no other way to get to heaven. You can't have Christ and other gods. You cannot serve two masters. Those who live their lives in Vanity Fair will die there too, and they will never see the land of Canaan. They will never see the promised land. The way of salvation is presented before all of us. We either worship and value Christ above all and devote all to Him, or we choose to worship created things instead. So the question of this Lord's Day is this. What today gives your life meaning? What drives you? What affects the decisions you make? What perhaps are the gods of your heart that you need to cast down and worship Christ alone? This morning we came to the subject of idolatry and we saw how human beings seek to find in created things those things that they were created to find in God. He is to give our lives purpose and meaning and joy, but in our wickedness we, we turn from His light and we turn to the darkness, and in the darkness we try and find other things to be our God as if they can meet those needs that we don't want to have met in the true God. But nothing else can meet our needs in a truly lasting way. Now my intention tonight is to bring us into verses 24 and 25, but there is still a little bit of work to be done in verse 23. What's interesting, however, is that verse 23 and verse 25 seem to parallel each other. In fact, I would suggest to you that verse 23 and verse 25 say almost exactly the same thing. I think verse 25 is Paul's way of bringing out even more clearly what he's saying in verse 23. And both verses are meant to teach the same truth, how utterly foolish it is to worship the things of the world rather than God. Paul wants us to feel, to sense how foolish we are for our idolatry. And he highlights how foolish it is to worship the things of this world in two ways. One, by contrasting that which is truly God with that which is not, and by contrasting the glory of God with the glory of things that are not. In other words, we're foolish for worshiping idols because one, idols aren't God, and because number two, the glory of idols doesn't compare to the glory of God. 
me focus first on Paul's contrast of the true God with images. In verse 23, he says, We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. So here's our foolish exchange. We've chosen not to have God, but to have images. He says the same thing in verse 25 by saying that we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We've chosen to suppress the things that are true about God and instead we look to things that are false, things that are not God, to be God's for us. And what does Paul tell us in verse 23 about these images that we worship? Well, he tells us that these are images in the likeness of man. Man was created in the image of God. But man is not God. We need to hear this. If you try and find your purpose, meaning, and joy by devoting yourself to another person so that you are basically making those people or that person your God, you are worshiping an image and not the true God. In the way people work, we see a shadow of our God who works. In the way people relate to one another, we see a glimpse of how God relates to us and to Himself within the Trinity. When you see an artist using his or her creativity to do something amazing, it's just a a, a shadow of God and His creativity. In man, we do see glimpses of God because we were made in the image of God, but we are not God. And if you try and find your meaning, purpose, and joy in another person, you will be let down. Don't worship Tom Cruise. Don't worship President Obama. Don't worship Bill O'Reilly or Bill Gaither, or Billy Graham, or Joel Osteen, or John MacArthur. Don't worship your family members. Don't make them the center of your life. Oh, love them deeply. Serve them. Care for them. But they must not be your God, and you must not seek to find your, your ultimate joy and security in them. God is greater and more glorious and more worthy of your honor and thanksgiving than even those people who are nearest and dearest to you. Ultimately, your joy, purpose, and meaning should come from God and your service to Him, not your family. You serve your family out of your love for God. Got that? Uh, There's a lot of people who serve God out of their love for family. You know that? My, my family always went to church. It's the thing my family does. I don't want to hurt my mother. It would, it would break her heart if I didn't go to church. Or if I said I wasn't a Christian, it would, it would, it would break you know, aunt so-and-so's heart. No, in, in order for me to be the person I need to be for my family, I'm going to serve God. That's backwards. You don't serve God for your family. You serve your family for God. But here's the thing. Paul in verse 23, doesn't really talk about worshiping people instead of God. He talks about worshiping images of people, right? Images that resemble people. That is, in in pagan cultures, they would make an idol out of gold or bronze or clay, 
and they would form it in the image of a man and then they would sacrifice to that image and they would pray to that image and they would care for that image and they would devote themselves to that image. They worshipped an image of the image of God. You see? Part of the way that man tries to suppress God and to repress God, as we talked about this morning, is to create a substitute God. We all worship an image of an image of God. <laughs> right? Rather than having the real thing, they satisfied themselves with images that pointed to the real thing. It's the same thing with birds and animals and reptiles. All of these things should point us to the Creator God. But rather than seeing birds and trees and rocks and flowers and looking at them and letting them draw our attention to God and worshiping Him, we worship the sign. Right? These things are supposed to be arrows pointing up to God and we're worshiping the arrows. At least these pagans did and some still do today. I've used this illustration before. It's like seeing a sign for Disney World on I-95 and pulling over at the sign and picnicking there and saying we've made it. It's like seeing a picture of someone on your wall and trying to have a conversation with them. That's not the person, it's an image. Well, Paul wants us to see this contrast, the difference between worshiping God and worshiping something that's just an image, something that's not real. Don't substitute anything for God. How foolish to trade the real thing for images. Look, we live in a culture in which image is everything. We do not live in a culture that values substance. We don't. What matters in our day is not truth, but appearance. Not substance, but style. But Christians must be radically different. We are not to be won over simply by eloquent words or by temporary pleasures, whatever else this world throws at us. We should want the real thing, the lasting thing, the ultimate thing, the thing for which we were created. And it's not ultimately a thing. It's a person, Jesus Christ, God Himself. To give yourself to any other person or thing is to dishonor God and to do harm to yourself and to others. You were made for Christ. The other way that Paul expresses how foolish idolatry is is not just that we exchange the true God for images, but he wants us to see the difference between the glory of God and the glory of these images. And you can really feel it in verse 23, right? We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Note the contrast, immortal, unperishing, mortal, perishing. Or in verse 25, he does the exact same parallel. He says, we've chosen to serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Right? He wants us to sense the glory of God that we're choosing not to worship. And he wants us to sense the lack of glory of everything else that we are choosing to worship. God is immortal. He cannot perish. Everything else can perish. God is the creator. Everything else is not the creator. It's creation. God is blessed forever. He is eternally happy. He is eternally prosperous and good. These other things apart from him are not. 
And what this means is that if we are to abstain from idols, and if we are instead to love and treasure God above all, we need to know, and not just in our heads, but in the depths of our souls, we need to know and we need to feel the glory of God so that when the glory of the things of this world starts pulling at us, we have tasted a deeper glory so we can say, you have no pull on. And so here's the agenda for the rest of the message. Three points that I want us not just to hear and know, I want us to sense in our being. Number one, God is glorious. Number two, other things are glorious too, but theirs is a derived glory. And number three, the purpose of salvation is that we might cease from our idolatry and turn again to see and savor the glory of the true God. I really believe that's what Paul's saying here. So number one, God is glorious. We talk about the glory of God. We're talking about the beauty and the greatness of all that God is. If I talk about the glory of football, I'm speaking of all the things that make football great. Well, if I speak of the glory of God, I'm talking about all of those things that make God great. The only difference between God and football is this. Everything about God is great. In fact, He is the very definition of greatness. There is no part of God that is not good. There is no part of God that is not perfect, beautiful, and pure. There is no angle of God that you can find where you will find Him to be wicked or impure or darkness. No, God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. What should we think about in order to consider God's glory? We can consider His might. Is there anything stronger than God? He can do all He pleases with solar system. could look at his wisdom is there anyone who could plan things and work things for as as good a purpose and in as minute a detail as God has planned and worked all things so that his wisdom is evident in everything around us we could talk about his love or his justice his patience even his wrath and if we talked about all of these attributes we would see that all of them are good and perfect and pure and that they show his beauty in ways that nothing else in all creation come close to showing. God is glorious in that in Him, our lives have greater meaning, purpose, and joy than anything else. If I try and find those things in something else, they ultimately will pass away, and so will my purpose in life, and so will my meaning in life, and so will my joy. It will be lost with whatever created thing I've devoted myself to. But God is immortal. If my purpose, meaning, and joy is in Him, He will never perish, and neither will my meaning, purpose, and joy. Is there anything that can satisfy us more deeply than God? No, everything else is a broken well, but He is the fountain of living waters. Paul, it's hard to figure out how to express the glory of God. I mean, talk about a theme, right? How do you you talk about the glory of God? But Paul does so in Romans 11. So quickly turn with me to Romans 11 and watch how how Paul gives an expression of of the glory of God. It's at the end of the chapter. 
in verse, beginning of verse 33, Romans chapter 11, verse 33. I want you to, no, don't just hear this, feel it. Know what Paul is saying in the depths of your soul. He just breaks out in worship. You'll understand why he breaks out in worship once we've covered one through this part. You'll, you'll understand the depths of this, but he breaks out in worship and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. In those verses, Paul mentions several ways that God is glorious. He speaks of the depths of the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. God alone needs no counsel. He needs no advice. He needs no help from anyone. In and of Himself, God does all things well. God owes nothing to anyone. Instead, everything else owes its existence to God. God will never owe us any debt, but all of creation stands in debt to God. From Him are all things. The far reaches of the universe and the creatures of the sea and the cells of the human body and everything else that exists, exists because of Him and only because of Him. We cannot say all things are from anything else. Name anything else in all the world that you could say everything comes from that. Only, you can only say that of God. Through Him are all things. God has not only willed all things to exist, but at any moment God could cause everything to cease to exist. You and I could whew, cease to exist any moment if God willed it. He sustains all things by His mighty hand. All things that exist at this moment exist only by order from His will. Through Him and apart from Him, everything is that without Him would not be. If that makes sense. Name anything else in the world that that's true of. Name anything else that sustains and upholds everything in the universe. Only God. And to Him are all things. Everything is for God. Everything that exists has a purpose. Everything that exists, even this chair and this stand and your hair and everything that exists has purpose and meaning because it is not only from God and through God, it is for God. In the end, there will never be a single ant or a single drop of water or a single cell in your body that did not exist for a good and glorious purpose, namely to express the glorious attributes and wisdom of God. Everything exists for Him. So there's nothing or, and no one like Him. When our hearts and minds are thinking rightly, when we're worshiping as we ought, we can say, as they did in the Bible, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods of the earth? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? We could look to the glory of Christ. When we want to see the glory of God, we should look to Christ. 
In Him we see the mercy of God and the kindness of God and the justice of God, the compassion of God, much more in the way Christ lived and walked and talked and healed the sick, taught the people, rebuked hypocrisy, endured torture, and laid down His life for us. In all of these ways we see the glory of God in Christ. What else in all the world would you point to and say, that is better than Christ? What else in all the world could you identify and say that is more glorious than Christ? Name anything. Name that thing that you love more than anything in the world. That thing you can't wait to get home and do or learn about or think about. That thing that consumes your mind and test it. Is it more glorious than God? Or is your love misplaced? Are your affections inordinate affections? Are they out of order with what they should be feeling towards? So Paul wants us to see that God is glorious and and we should exchange the glory of God for for petty stuff. Number two, other things are glorious too. Right? I mean, would you not say that the sun is glorious? Do you not go to, to, to Boone and look at Grandfather Mountain and say, that's, that's glorious? Or go to the Colorado Rockies and see some truly glorious mountains? Or go to the Alps and see some even more truly glorious mountains? How many of us have not stood at a seashore and looked out at the open ocean and had that thought, this is glorious? Other things are glorious too. And the Bible speaks of many other things as having glory. There's no reason to debate that. But here's the thing. God is glorious in and of himself. And nothing else can say that. Everything else that is, that is glorious was given its glory. Only God has not received his glory. Rather, he is intrinsically glorious. The sun is brilliant, but who gives the sun its light? Mountains are strong and mighty and have a grandeur about them, but who fashioned them that way? The ocean is vast and deep and causes us to stand in awe of its sheer magnitude, but who created the oceans and hold them in the of his, of his pinky. Anything that is good in all creation ultimately is good because of God. James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The glory of everything else in the world is a derived glory. So yes, you can point to different things in the world or different people or different events or causes and say, that's a good thing, that's a glorious thing. And many times you'd be right. But whatever is good or whatever is glorious about any person or anything or any cause in the world ultimately has its good and glory from God. He is the ocean of glory. Everything else is a little drop of glory that has come from Him. There are often aspects of our jobs or our possessions, even our entertainments or our families 
that are genuinely glorious. But theirs is a reflection of God's glory the way the moon reflects the sun. The moon in and of itself does not have light. It only reflects that which is given to it. And so it is with all the things in this world. So when we see glory in the things of creation, we should thank God for His good gifts and we should worship Him, the giver of the gifts and the giver of glory. Don't worship the gifts. Worship the giver. Very quickly. I know we ran out of time. Third purpose, third thing I wanted to say is that the purpose of salvation, right? Because that's what this is about. It's about the gospel and why we need the gospel. And Paul was saying that one of the reasons we need the gospel is because of our idolatry and the way we're turning to these petty things with little glory rather than turning to the true God with all his glory. And so what Paul was saying is that the gospel comes and saves us to save us from this, to save us from idolatry and to turn us again to God where we can see and savor his glory. This is why Jesus died, to bring us to God, 1 Peter 3, 18. We've spent a lot of time lately where I always, I just, I reference 2 Corinthians 4, 6 all the time. So much of my theology is affected by 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where we're told that through the gospel, God comes to us the same way he said to the darkness, let there be light. He speaks into our dark hearts and creates light and we see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The Holy Spirit has been given to us and he's working in our hearts to purify us so that when we finally enter heaven, we will have no more gods and our heart will be fully, totally ready with full capacity to see and savor God alone. All right. There will be a day when we will see God as He is. 1 John 3 2. We will see Him in all His glory. And that day will last forever, and we call it heaven. And Jesus came and lived and died to give us this. Friends, this is the epitome of love. Bringing us to God in all His glory is how Christ has loved us. And by the way, that's what it means for us to love others, to do all we can to bring people to see and savor the glory of God. Suppose someone offered you a billion dollars. Certainly you'd refuse that, right? Suppose someone offered you the whole world. Would you refuse that? Probably not. Well, in Christ, we are offered something infinitely greater. God himself. Him is our God. And we is his people. And once we're brought to him, we'll never lose him. So let everything else lose its value in comparison to God. Mount Hermon, do not cling so tightly to money and possessions. Do not cling too tightly to family or to job. Don't cling too tightly to your health or to the entertainments of this world, but rather be willing to sacrifice all of these that you might have more of the glory of God. Parents, teach your children not to treasure the things of this world too highly. Fellow Christians, we need to help each other be on guard against worldliness. We are prone to idolatry. 
Let us not with our words or actions give people the impression that we've found anything that could be better than God. Let me close by reminding us of this. It all comes down to our hearts. In our hearts, do we prefer God to other things? One way you could test that, how much time do you spend with God in prayer in the Bible? And when you have a choice of being with Him in prayer in the Bible or serving Him in some way or doing other things, what does your heart naturally incline towards? The Bible makes clear that on our heart, that on our own, our hearts will always make idols of the things of this world rather than turn to God. So whether we have never been saved or have been saved for years, every moment we need God's grace working in our hearts to help us see and savor things aright. We need to acknowledge this. You and I are helpless to love God as we ought on our own. It all comes down to the heart, and it is God who holds our hearts in His hands. And he turns them which way he pleases, as he desires. So we ought to be a people much in prayer, pleading with God, God, help me love you above everything else. Here's how St. Augustine described what God was doing in his life. I'll close with this. Now, a man named Pelagius came on the scene He was arguing that a a person can turn to God on his own, no need for God's help, no need for the Holy Spirit. A person on their own, by their own free will, can cast down their idols and come to God on their own. Augustine was refuting this from the Bible, and uh, he wrote his his book, The Confessions, which is a prayer to God, and in that book he, he wrote this to God. He said, During all those years of my rebellion, where was my free will? What was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment so that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. You who outshine all light. Is that your testimony? Can you say that to God? God, you are the one. Oh, I used to love all the things of this world. I used to be captured with all of this stuff. And then God, you came in and you began to drive these idols out of my heart. And you came and you took their place. And you shine so much more brightly. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation. Let this be our prayer for ourselves, for our families, for our church, and all we know. That God would drive fruitless joys out of our lives by turning us to Him who is worthy of all honor and thanksgiving. Where does God stack up with everything else in your life? If you were to make a list 
of those things that bring your life purpose, meaning, and happiness, where would God be on that list? And if God is at the top of your list, is He barely so? Dear friends, God should not be at the top of the list. He should be the list. Everything else gives you purpose, meaning, and joy only if it does so in connection to your faith, service, and trust in God. Everything else that brings purpose and meaning into your life should only do so under the umbrella of God's glory and your desire to love Him, serve Him, honor Him, and give Him the worship He deserves. That's what we mean when we say, God, You are my all in all. Is that true of us? I pray it is. Christian, one day it will be. <laughs> the day we go to heaven, God will be our all in all. And He's working on us even now. And I hope maybe he used this Sunday to get some idols out of our lives and to move us further in that direction. Any questions?